welcome to the fourth episode of the Oceans of Learning podcast series, where we have been celebrating our seas and raising awareness around the importance of Ireland's marine resources. I'm Finn Vanderar, your host, and for this episode, we are focusing on Our Oceans, Our Future. Later, you'll be hearing from two activists, Emer Manning and Gary Kett, about their, how to engage more young people in helping to protect our oceans. I'll be speaking to Aidan Fitzgerald from the Marine Institute about their new research vessel, the Tom Crean. I'll be talking with John Bell, Director of Healthy Planet at the EU Commission, who will be explaining in more detail Europe's Green Deal and how it's going to relate to our oceans. First, though, I'm joined by Simon Coveney, Fine Gael Minister for Foreign Affairs, but also someone who is a keen sailor. I'll be talking to him about his love of sailing and how the sea has helped him to inform his political decision making throughout the years. In many ways, I grew up in Cork Harbour. Um, uh, on boats, um, either learning how to sail or teaching people how to sail. Um, and um, yeah, my love of water and all things maritime, I, I think has has taken me through various different stages in life from, from what I've done in politics uh, as a minister for the Marine at one point uh, to you know when I was in school, um, being uh, very much into competitive swimming to whether I was, um, you know, canoeing, windsurfing, sailing, um, uh, or whether I was on my holidays down in West Cork in, in places like, like Baltimore, Skull, uh, Crookhaven, uh, or indeed this summer when uh, we're holidaying at home on Shirkin Island as we did last year. Um, okay. And uh, we uh, were lucky enough to be able to bring a boat down uh, and I'm now introducing my children to uh, to the sea in the hope that they love it as much as I do. And we were we were really privileged last year. We saw dolphins and whales and um, a lot of um, marine wildlife, uh, as you do, uh, on the, the south coast of Ireland, particularly off West Cork and Kerry. So it's um, it's uh, uh, it's something that I have been uh, connected to for a long time. So so for me, um, actually, when I initially entered politics. I always wanted to be Minister for the Marine uh, and I got an opportunity to, to be that as well as Minister for Agriculture at the time for, for five years. And uh, certainly I'd like to think during that period, we raised the profile of uh, the Marine, not just from a fishing perspective, but also, you know, we launched Ireland's first integrated ocean strategy, which was called Harvesting Our Ocean Wealth at the time. And that I think has been a basis for I hope a much more integrated and much more ambitious approach towards how we manage this extraordinary resource, uh, as well as obviously uh, manage a fishing industry. But I, I used to often be very frustrated that in the past, the marine portfolio in politics, in terms of the ministry, was always seen through one single lens, which was responsibility for the fishing industry. Yeah. And of course, you know, the marine and uh, and our ocean is just so much more than that in terms of an ecosystem, in terms of a mode of transport, in terms of recreation. Would you say that when you are looking at people connecting with the water in that way, are they then also engaging more in its protection? I hope so. Yeah, um, I think, um, and I think that is the case too. So you know, we have in our program for government, we you know we've made a commitment to uh to to set aside 10 percent of our marine resource as marine protection areas but actually get to 30 percent by 2030 you know if if i had said that 15 years ago uh or perhaps even five years ago uh, i would have got an immediate pushback from the fishing industry from from others who are who would be concerned that 
uh, a resource that they make a living from uh, could potentially be taken away from them or they would be disrupted in terms of their activities. Now, you know, you get a response. Tell me a little bit more about marine yeah. conservation areas. No, um, no, and in, we have a public consultation process underway at the moment. And as far as I can see, it's been predominantly positive. And so, you know, I've spoken to Eamon Ryan and others who uh, who share my sort of view that marine protection areas need to become a uh, almost a sort of a, a point of identity for Ireland uh, in terms of international politics around the levels of ambition that I think we need to go after in that space. And talking about marine protected areas, I've actually been slowly making my way through that rather massive document <laughs> on them. Um, so, and, and I, I totally agree. I, I even see it myself um, working in kind of local fisheries forums that um, there is a really high level of engagement uh, with the fishing community. And obviously they understand completely that those protected areas are spawning grounds. Better spawning grounds means better fishing stocks. So it's, it's a very um, kind of linear process. I would just be curious to know when you're talking about the kind of expansion of the marine protected areas, you know, um, obviously there's an outline of what that will mean spatially, where that will be, but in terms of the actual policing of that, um, what would that look like? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think that depends on the level of restriction. Um, so, so at the moment, the, the expectation is that of the 30% of our ocean resource, and don't forget, that's 10 times our landmass. So you're talking about a marine protection area, you know, uh, highly protected and uh, and partially protected of, you know, an ocean area that is uh, more than three times the landmass of the Republic of Ireland. So it's a, isn't the idea that we're we're larger than Germany if you count our seas? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we're, we're one of the biggest countries in the European Union. When you when you look at the real map of Ireland, as yeah. people like Peter Heffernan and others remind me of regularly, the so so, um, so this is an this is a massive project. Like this isn't this isn't setting aside sort of niche areas in bays uh, and, you know, picking areas of, of offshore coral, you know, cold water coral and so on, which of course is, is all very important. My area. Yeah, sorry. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to say too much about it then because you know a lot more than me. Um, but, but the, the, you know, these are treasures that need to be protected okay. and aren't being protected right now. Um, and at times are being damaged. Um, the, but, but actually, the Marine Protection Area project goes way beyond that. Like this is this is uh, I, I think we've got something like 220 million acres of of sea surface. Uh, we're so, talking so about would, a third of that. We're talking about a third of that being being uh, well, first of all, 10 uh, percent um, of it being highly protected. The other the other 20 percent of that 30 percent um uh less so but I, I would hope that actually we would raise the ambition in terms of levels of protection for the full 30 percent yeah and i would hope that as we prove the concept to fishermen and to other marine users that actually marine protection areas can make more for everybody in okay. terms of fish stocks spawning juvenile fish um uh, uh, and and of course we share our fish resource with many other countries in the european union as well so this isn't this is about protecting fish from from um, uh, from fishing in certain areas, but it's also then about, you know, how do we manage marine protection areas in the context of offshore energy? Yes. You know, do we facilitate offshore wind farms in protection areas? If so, how can we actually potentially use that infrastructure to to uh, as a positive? 
uh, in terms of man-made reefs or uh, how do we create networks of um, uh, of kelp farms potentially uh, that can that can act as a sequester of carbon yeah. um, so there are there are many things we can do part of what we need to do in marine protection areas is just leave things alone and, and allow them to develop <laughs> and allow them to develop as nature would like them to develop and then some of what we need to do i think also is about applying science to uh to uh to helping to to build an increased resource at sea that and perhaps actually, is right now but, but in terms of enforcement sorry i mean no we will of course the naval service i think will have a role in that um, but I think a lot of this will be um, will be uh, around um, observation, uh, either whether that's through CASAs with the Air Corps uh, that do an awful lot of maritime observation at the moment from the air, or indeed satellite observation. I think increasingly uh, will will play more and more of a role in in ensuring that the areas that we are looking to effectively. Uh, protect from the kind of activity that might undermine ecosystems there yeah. uh, are are actually being enforced. And, you know, if you say you're going to do this, but don't actually enforce it, uh, and if there's not some edge to that enforcement, well, then, you know, you're in a bad space. Um, and it's and there's a fundamental credibility gap if that, if that happens. Completely. And it is amazing to see, even just for our listeners, um, how, how quickly things like that, um, that kind of action can actually work. I know myself from diving in areas that are adjacent to a marine protected area and then diving in the actual marine protected area and, and the difference is tenfold. Uh, just a kind of a key takeaway for our listeners, one thing that they can do today to help protect our oceans. Well, first of all, they can think about where their litter goes. That would be helpful. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about ocean plastics. Um, there's also been a lot of work to try to reduce the amount of plastic going into the, the ocean. But, you know, I think, um, I, I mean, I broaden the question out slightly because I would challenge people to engage with the ocean more. So, you know, take a holiday on an island, um, you know, go out whale watching and be wowed by what you're going to see. Um, you know, go and take a paddy course and learn how to dive. You know, you don't have to go to the Mediterranean to do that. And in fact, if you do it here, you'll see a lot more uh, and the water will be a lot clearer from my experience um, if you pick the right time of year. Um, so, you know, I think the more people engage with understanding the ocean, this extraordinary resource that we happen to live next to, then I think the more they'll appreciate that it needs to be protected. Um, and it's hard, I think, to sort of chase after people to tell them that they must do this and they must do that to protect the oceans. It's from my experience, it's much more effective if you bring them to the ocean and say, you, you know, do you know what happens when you drop that piece of plastic that holds your cans of beer together into the ocean and how long it lasts and the impact it can have on a, you know, on a marine mammal or whatever. Um, I, I completely agree with you on that. Although I would say definitely for, for most of the plastics that we see in the ocean and definitely I know myself from research, it's not typically, you know, people littering on, on the, the beaches as they're out for the days. It's it's more, um, you know, runoff that's coming off for yeah, or no, no, I think that, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair, you know, and like I, my, I've got three daughters and uh, one of them is going to be, um, uh, uh, you know, a marine advocate and, and an environmental advocate um, uh, when she's older um, and she asks I, 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 and it's amazing how engaged people and I'm talking about a 10 year old yep. 
are in terms of uh, why aren't we protecting nature? Um, and uh, why are, uh, and I was explaining to her what microbeads were one evening. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's amazing when you talk to somebody who doesn't have any vested interests and is very innocent in terms of how they look at things uh, in terms of what's right and what's wrong. Um, they will state the obvious, but uh, but actually delivering on that as a policymaker is actually not straightforward at all, yeah. as we found out in terms of the, how long it took to put legislation in place to effectively ban certain types of microbeads. So, yeah. so but I, I, I still think that the, the most effective way to protect the ocean is, is educating people about the ocean. Definitely an uh, because otherwise it's just a, a list of rules that, that people are told about, but they don't really understand the rationale behind uh, and so, yeah, my advice to people in terms of what they could do to protect the ocean is, you know, educate somebody else about it who doesn't know about it, whether, whether it's a child or whether it's an adult. Um, and I think the, um, the most valuable thing we can do for the oceans is, is expose more and more and more people to, um, to, to the wonders of what they can see both above and under, under the water. Uh, and I think when that happens, you get... Uh, um, you get a response, uh, an emotive response that is that's very powerful, um, and I, I mean that's that's what's happened on campaigning around climate action, for example, particularly driven by young people. You know, when people actually care about something and campaign and protest and demand change, you know, it it it, it starts to happen, uh, and uh, yeah, and a big part of our climate action now needs to be an oceans policy. You know, and whether it's John Kerry talking about that at the very top of sort of the global debate on the build up to COP26, or whether it's a, you know, a child in school in or more uh, uh, on the back of a project uh, of cleaning beaches, you know, the, the um, you know, we are, and this is kind of comes back to what I said at the start, in my view, the Irish public as a whole are a lot more in tune now with the sea, oceans, and, and the importance of our maritime environment than they've been at any point in the past. Um, and, uh, and that's a good thing because it encourages and in fact requires politicians to respond to that changing mood and changing demand. And for someone who sort of is interested and cares about these things, as I know you are, but I, but I am as well, that's a good thing too. You know, we are now openly talking in government about things like marine protection areas, which there would have been resistance to in the past, whereas now I think you'll see increasing ambition. And by the time we get to 2030, who knows, maybe we'll be talking about 50% of our ocean yeah, resource being a marine protection area, not 30%. Yeah. yeah, massive plastic reductions, all of those things would be fantastic. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, and I mean, I am conscious that there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast saying, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's been in politics for whatever, 22 years. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, what's he done to actually change it? Um, and, you know, I, I think there has been a process of change. It's been too slow in terms of the legislation, but we are in a better place now than we've ever been, I think, in terms of understanding the science of what we need to do. And we have, we have certainly factored that into our, uh, our, our program for government. Uh, and I think there's a real appetite now to to take oceans, ocean science uh, seriously. And part of that debate will be fishing. 
because we, of course, want to protect the fishing industry. But I think it's much, much bigger than that now. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's a good thing. Staying with politics and policy, John Bell is an Irishman at the forefront of the EU's green innovation deal as it seeks to become the world's first climate neutral continent by 2050. He's the director of Healthy Planet at the EU Commission, and I'm very excited to find out uh, more about what the EU is planning in terms of the marine environment. The European Green Deal, to a lot of people, it sounds like, you know, big, complicated uh, policies, and it is that. Um, what it is, actually, it's the fifth great mission of the European Union. So the European Union was founded as people know, to bring peace uh, through coal and steel. Then the next mission was to try and build a market that worked for everybody. And the third great mission was uh, creating uh, uh, the, the, uh, a peacefully reunited continent. The Eurozone, which you know may, many people will see as a work that has yet to reach its full completion in different ways. <laughs> people have different views on it, but it's there. We'll get there. And it's getting us, getting us through. But now the mission of the European Union, the Green Deal, what it says is that from now until 2050, which is, remember, 30 years uh, beyond policy cycles, political cycles, investment cycles, the European Union, what it's for is to reconcile uh, our society and economy with the biosphere. It's to try and get to climate neutrality. It's to try and work within our environmental means uh, and resources and to try and do it in a fairer and more just way. And to do that, Every policy, every instrument, everything you know about the European Union is being looked at again and targets are being set. So over the last year or so, President von der Leyen has set new targets for the climate mitigation that has to happen in every country, in every sector. We've just launched a climate adaptation strategy. So how are we going to live with the changes that we can't avoid until everything is settled down? A new biodiversity strategy, and we're coming to the oceans here. Um, our life support systems where we need to be able to understand and measure and, and fix them and clear targets for the restoration and across the whole array, money and all the rest. So where we are in research innovation is in a particular space because, of course, we've got a slightly longer lens on things. So I was just going to say, obviously, you're the director of Healthy Planet. Where, um, what is that kind of how does that fit in to that grander scheme of things? So what we have to do uh, in the past, research and innovation kind of did its own thing and, you know, drove new businesses and new ideas and improved the science and the knowledge and the understanding of the world. And the framework program, Horizon Europe, which is the biggest publicly funded program in the world, it's about 95 billion euros for the next period. Um, now it has to set direction because we have, we like to say we're running out of time, but we're not running out of ideas. Um, Europe is the most productive part of the planet in terms of science and papers being published for the size of, of the European Union. And we know if we're going to get to where we want to get, it's kind of a transition by design. If you can imagine yourself in the middle of the 19th century, having to create the Industrial Revolution, it's, 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 it's a task like that. And so you can't say to science and research, look, keep doing whatever you're doing, Laz, it's fine. I mean, what they're doing is extraordinary. But we now need to set direction and science and research has to say, well, if these are if this is the destination, what science do we need to understand what's going on? What appliance of science do we need to actually put in place the prediction, the measurement? What kind of new economy can emerge from this? In the ocean, it's the blue economy. How can we make the transition as painless as possible because it will affect all kinds of different people in different ways? So it's really setting direction. Science is no longer observing the change. It has to direct the change. And I guess, and then in terms of actual like uh, implementation, then what, what is that looking like? So to, to, to make that happen, there's so many different aspects. So one is if you take this big green deal framework we're talking about, 
So the ocean has now been brought in front and center in all the targets. So the targets that we have for biodiversity, we now need to have a third, uh, 30 percent of the um, ocean space, sea, sea basin space as well, uh, have to be marine protected areas. Um, what happens in the ocean has to contribute towards carbon mitigation. So if you think about ports and shipping, you know, fisheries and all of the other things that are going on there, we have to make a huge push. There's a wall of money there to try and make this transition happen, but it has to happen in the right places, not investing in the wrong places. Um, we need to have a mobilization of society and an involvement of society uh, in understanding what, it, what, is, what, it, what is at stake for us, not in, in abstract terms, in practical terms, we need to find new ways of helping people to deliberate in the decisions that need to be taken. So the example I often give is um, Dublin Bay. Uh, you know, there's a, the, sea, the sea is rising, so something is gonna to have to be done, whatever level the sea rises at where we are, because it, it will rise and fall in different places on, on the planet. Um, you saw in Dublin Bay uh, recently, you know, residents you know, took on the corporation to lower the seawall because it was spoiling their view, which is, one point of view yeah. but in the future if the city of dublin for example was faced with a situation where we had to do something significant imagine we had to put in a new wetland island uh, in front of all of those beautiful properties all the way around dublin bay or some kind of barrage between hoth and and Dunleary. i'm not saying these are what have to be done yeah. but these are the things that different cities around the world are struggling with how would we make decisions about that how would we um, make decisions about that and so um, the public have to be part of this Absolutely, I completely agree the public are, are kind of crucial in this role. I do often feel though that often uh, it can be pushed back onto the individual. I'm curious what it, what the kind of plans are in terms of industry. So, so I personally work as a marine mammal observer. So obviously yeah. I look at noise pollution in the water. I also work in an industrial port. So I totally agree that you know everyone can switch to electric cars and energy efficient light bulbs. But if industry is still going on at scale and we're not doing things like um, you know changing to quieter propellers or things like that, then then what you do on an individual level, I don't feel can kind of do as much as what we can do on an industrial level. Well, I think, Finn, you, you, I mean, it's, it, it's true that we all have to do something, but the oldest trick in the book is to, you know, say that the individuals are responsible for things which are systemic. It's and and. So obviously we, we shouldn't be choking our rubbish on the beach and we should be going for, you know, getting rid of the single use plastics, which is another thing that's been outlawed in, in, in European law. And we have to change our behaviours. But some, some of the time we need to see which of our behaviours you know, there's a big thing going on at the moment. People are wondering if that, you know, Netflix documentary, is it is it correct? Is it not correct? I did a whole you know, rant on that before. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure you did. Now, the, the good thing about it is it, it's, it's starting the conversation, yeah, but science exactly. has to be able to come in and say, look, this thing here is a problem. That may not be the conclusion that you draw from this, but we don't have a way of talking about these things. And these kind of conversations will impact on some, sometimes the most uh, economically vulnerable communities who are living in fishing communities and so forth. So we have to create and uh, a new ecology and a new economy. And we have to, so we talk about the blue bioeconomy. So I'll give you a practical example. One of the things I do is um, bio-based industries, which is turning waste and, and side streams into non-fossil based, all kinds of things. It used to be things like, you know, uh, bioplastics and biochemicals and bio paper and taking all the oil out of that. And now it's going into nutrients and foods, foods and food supplies. And we have people in Ireland, which is a very dynamic country in this space. I mean, the next, the next economy is the green economy, the way the digital economy was coming, you know, 20 years ago. And Ireland is very well positioned. You've got people in Ireland who are taking food waste, uh, fisheries waste, 
and turning it into high value added nutrients, cosmetics and various other things. So there are new opportunities there and they're also place based. So you can do a lot of this stuff in a fishing village. You can have as part of whether you're talking about renewable energy or you're talking about um, the new kinds of food from the sea that we need, alternative proteins. Um, you know, what is going to happen in, in Greenland? We have a project that's looking at seaweed forests and so forth that could be a base for medicines and nutrients and alternative feed supplies and food supplies. Um, they will, all that will need to be serviced. Um, people are, there's a great map of the Netherlands in 2100. It's maybe something we should do in Ireland where they took all of the known nature-based solutions and said, if we, if we put everything that we know now to improve the Netherlands, what would it look like in a hundred years time? It's amazing. Um, and it means big shifts in fishing and food and all, but it doesn't mean that people are no longer working in those spaces. They're just doing different, different things in a different way. Yeah, completely. You know? How can we implement the changes fast enough? The science has been there for a long time that the change needs to happen now. So well, there are different that? things. I mean, one is let's not forget that at certain points, people decide, you know, it's a kind of a quirk of democracy that at a certain point people actually decide what they want for the future. And I think things that were seen as a bit exotic a few years ago are simply a given. And it's not just the, the young, young people who are marching on the streets. I think everybody's thinking that, that there has to be a shift here. Um, you do it in different ways. So the European Union is a community of laws and practices. So there, the laws are in place, the targets are there, the incentives are there, pricing incentives, you know, the carbon price will, will adapt. Um, the financial incentives, the investment incentives, the, the reskilling. So you need a mix of incentives and, and commitment. But I think at the end, you need, you need a vision. So if you look at Ireland, for example, I mean, Ireland is an ocean superpower. We, we think of ourselves as this small, poor little island, you know, where history decides everything. Actually, geography is quite a powerful thing, too. Uh, I don't know, is it 880,000 square meters of seabed that, that Ireland has, where, you know, I, I think we're the, the, maybe even the largest or the second largest member state of the European Union, if you include our, 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 our waters. That's it. I think, I think we're bigger than Germany, if you include yeah. our waters. We're, we're more water than land. Indeed. And yet, until the great work that was done, um, um, Peter Heffern, the Marine Institute, Simon Coveney, uh, putting the marine strategy in place, that we are an island nation. Uh, and we tend to forget this. Um, and that this is not simply a resource, it's a responsibility, but it's also an extraordinary opportunity in terms of knowledge and innovation and, and all of these new, the services economy that will arise in the next 20 years will be based on ecosystem services and, and, and all the rest. So if for the first time Ireland looked at itself uh, and looked out and saw ourselves in an economy, set out a strategy, uh, and then as part of that, engaged with the rest of the world. Over the last 10 years, I would say, Ireland has, has been punching way above its weight in terms of global science and research innovation. It's been showing a lead um, with Morrigan and Quinn, it was Enda Kenny and, and uh, Simon Coveney at the time. We signed this agreement, the Galway Agreement, to, to create an all a, a North Atlantic Ocean Research Alliance with the United States and Canada. We now have a thousand research teams working in the North Atlantic. Ireland has done a huge job in terms of mapping. Uh, it's involved in uh, uh, some of the biggest um, science and research projects on ecosystems, on oceanography uh, and so forth. But it's taken a leading role. And in the UN where Ireland I think is on the Security Council at the moment, Ireland is seen as an island leader like there's lots of islands around the world, quite quite a lot in Europe. I'm not even sure if we know how many there are in Mayo, but like there's quite a lot of islands around the place. And again, it's how you see the world. 
And I think, I mean, I'm looking at home, my, my, my academic interest was, was about um, how do we make peaceful transitions on identity in the island of Ireland this is 30 years ago when it seemed impossible. But I mean, a lot of the talk in Ireland is about history. We should do a lot more talking about our geography. I mean, as an island, leaving aside what the arrangements are and what flags and all the rest of people have, we're faced with this very big change. And we have this huge opportunity as an island to work out how we want to navigate that change and how we use the ocean and the seas and the resources that we have and the extraordinary um, uh, land that we have. God bless the rain, you know, uh, who, who knew that rain was a secret weapon, but it's going to be very important <laughs> in the future. Definitely in the coming years. You know? um, I really liked what you said there of that, I guess that our ocean is not just a resource, but also a responsibility. Um, one, one last question before I let you go. Um, what kind of advice would you have for our listeners um, that want to help us achieve a healthy ocean? Well, the first thing is get informed. And, and there's no, there's no, lack of stuff going on. As we speak, um, all the countries of the ocean, building all we started in the Galway Declaration, are meeting in the Azores, and they're going, we're going to build an, an all-Atlantic research community from pole to pole. But central to that is we have uh, youth ambassadors, uh, ocean youth ambassadors. I want to create something that's intergenerational. What I would love to see is if we can create, um, the, you know, the way there used to be military service in the past, to create planetary service, allow people to actually volunteer to do take some time out and work work on that um i think the information is everywhere um and it's not just about watching netflix and you know there's a lot of material that you can take into your 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 sporting group your your school whatever else is there and i think citizen science where i think there's a thousand people for example took place in the activities in galway i think we're going to be using um the possibilities of the the the, the, the we uh, in in observing and mapping much more uh, frequently as a, as a major part of what we do. The behavior bit is a given, like we all know what we need to do to kind of just, just do le less of an imprint. Yeah. Uh, and I also I think like, you know, when it comes to whatever matters to you in terms of politics or, you know, whatever areas of activity you're involved in the arts or whatever else it is, you know, bring the blue into it. You know, let people know that you're interested. You know, why don't we, how would we see ourselves as like if we if we spent even a, a hundredth of the time talking about our geography as we do about our history, we could probably do. And it's all there in our in our drama, in our arts, in our visual, uh, in our theatre and all the rest. I think that's part of um, everything is about a story. People people move forward in terms of storyline. We need to write the new storyline together in all kinds of different ways. And I think the activity will be part of that. And, and last but not least, you know, study it. You know, go go and join up. It's an you know this. It's an incredibly it's interesting uh, way of spending your time. Uh, it's not sitting around in dusty labs most of the time. It's free, if I may say so, freezing your arse off in boats. And, you know, We're standing getting, on the pier. <laughs> yeah, sunburned. Yeah, wait, waiting for the yeah. others to come in. Um, I think one of the things I'd love to see, I'd love to see a University of the Sea. Oh, I, uh, I think that'd be another thing we need to do. So one of the things we'll do is we're trying to connect up all these different places get the researchers moving in connect them in with local communities and let's talk about the oceans you know and and the other thing is um the beauty of the ocean you know to you know beauty is truth at a certain level what has moved people is the beauty of the ocean and there's been amazing work done in ireland you know and it's always on odd slots at different parts of the evening yeah. um you know let's as i said visualize and engage with it and make ourselves live make it part of our our vernacular you know I love it. Bring the blue back into it. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Finn. And moving away from politics now, 
Adam Fitzgerald is the research vessel manager at the Marine Institute and next year sees the launch of their latest research vessel, the Tom Green. I caught up with Adam to find out more about the future expeditions and research that we can expect to see from the Tom Green in the coming years. We're actually, would you believe, in the middle of planning our 2022 and our 2023 schedule at the moment. So we plan quite a long way out, particularly for some of the sort of more uh, like the longer surveys, like up to the Arctic and that. So we basically open a ship time call in June and we invite uh, applications for this year and for the following year. So for this year, we've opened to 22 and 23. So our own scientists will apply just to book their slot for sort of recurring surveys. And then it's opened up to the to, to everybody, actually. So we get all those applications in uh, before the middle of September. And then we some have to be evaluated for funding. Some have been come with their own funding. So then we get all, our, they're all externally, or the, the funding ones are externally, externally evaluated. So when we've got all the successful ones, we slot it all together. And then usually by the end of November, we have a plan for the year. Uh, and then we just publish our schedule and, and get on with it. So obviously, we had... A lot of fun last year because uh, our very well planned schedule was sort of thrown into chaos a little bit with the, the pandemic. We managed to keep going and uh, deliver really, a really good year of, uh, of survey work. But yeah, and we have a great team here in RV Ops. Um, it's a small team, but they're very, very active and know what they're about. So yeah, so it's, it's a busy period for us from October through to November just to try and match what everybody needs to do. And then we also cater for all our crew changes uh every every month or so so yeah and so um speaking of planning for 2022 obviously it's going to be quite an exciting year there in your uh in your office with the rv team um what is it that you have coming up yeah so we have a, a new vessel in build the rv tom cream so it's going to be a 52.8 meter long replacement for the celtic voyager it's actually in reality very close to the to the capability of the explorer a little bit smaller um, and designed for slightly different things, but it's uh, very exciting. We're just working out how we're going to slot that into the schedule and when we transition over now to the new vessel. Obviously, our crews need to be trained and they need to be uh, ready to go on the new ship uh, as soon as uh, as soon as it's ready to be used. Um, so it's it's in currently in quite a advanced stage of build down in Astilleros Armand in Vigo. Uh, it's a uh, a yard their shipyard there and are that's been designed by the same people who designed the Celtic Explorers that's uh, Skip Technisk of uh, Norway so at the moment it's up built up to the main deck level and beyond so they're putting together the pre-constructed blocks so it's actually quite it's like putting Lego blocks together but a little bit harder to uh, stitch them together on a massive scale on a massive scale yeah so it um the well it, the main engines are in place at the moment the propulsion motor is going in as I speak all uh, four four out of seven winches are, are installed and so it'll be built up um like that and they'll commence things like painting and stuff like that in, in august and we hope to float it in some time later on in the year and then it'll be finished afloat then until uh the summer of next year when hopefully we'll take delivery so it's a very, uh, it's it's not the biggest vessel, but it has certainly has a lot of equipment on board. So one of the biggest challenges is fitting everything on board, even though I think it's a very big vessel between all the science equipment we've on board and all the equipment you need for a vessel of that type. But it will have a capability to do oceanographic work down to 4,000 meters. It will be able to fish down to 1,000 meters. It's uh, got all the latest equipment for underway uh, water uh, characterization. 
a very good suite of uh, hydrographic equipment. So it'll be ready to, to roll into the Infomar program mm -hmm. and uh, help uh, move um, deliver that by 2026. And we've learned a lot uh, from operating vessels over the last, I suppose, 20 years of having a modern vessel. And we've incorporated a lot of the, I guess, the wish lists and even small little simple clever things to make the vessel, to make the vessel even better. So uh, what, would, what would some of those be? Uh, just things like we have a backup, we have a primary multi-beam, but then we have a backup multi-beam. We have a drop key like the Explorer. So we, we, we've learned that it's all, you know, um, it's easier to maintain equipment on the drop key. And if you have a problem, you can switch to that. So it means we can stay going even if we have a failure on the system. Uh, we have, um, what else do we have? Yeah, I guess the deck layout, we've learned to keep the deck as big as possible. So because we use containerized labs a lot. So even though it's only 50 meters long, we can carry up to uh, three 20 foot uh, containerized labs uh, on the back deck. We can also take other equipment, national equipment, such as uh, the Holland one in a slightly modified uh, setup. We can also take a uh, University of Limerick's Science Foundation Ireland's funded. They have another ROV, a slightly smaller ROV called the Ethane. We had it out on the Explorer recently, actually. So the ship is designed from the start to take their system. So it can very quickly be mobilized. So if there was a you know a survey or indeed a, a, a national issue that needs to be looked at, uh, it's ready to do that. And kind uh, of how long has the has the plans for the Tom Green been in the works? So we got approval in 2018, and then we so I was involved leading the tender process to get selected designer. That happened uh, in 2018, and we signed a contract with them in early December, early 2019. Then we had to quickly get to a, a design that would allow us to get uh, costs in and tenders in from a shipyard. So we got to that stage in about July 2019, and then we'd already kicked off our tender process for a shipyard. So uh, we were able to close that then the deal with the shipyard in very late uh, December 2019. And then things kicked off with the shipyard then in in January effectively 2020 so all was going swimmingly uh, we, we met them in Norway with the designers and we had an initial meeting down in Spain and they began ordering components and stuff like that and getting the big stuff ordered and then uh, sort of the wheels came off the bus a bit then when when Covid uh, hit and the, the yard had actually shut down for two weeks but they managed to get going again very quickly after that modified their production methodologies we were very lucky actually because we were lucky because um, the phase we were at it was just ordering and project uh, commencing the project. So orders were still placed and we were able to catch up. So we're still on, on track, thank God, for the, for the delivery. So there was a lot of work between the designers, the yard, some of our vessel users, our vessel crew, just optimizing the design and making it exactly to the way the way we want it. We want it. Um, so obviously now you've got the Explorer, the Voyager. Um, will the Tom Crane kind of be expanding on your research capabilities or is it replacing something else or how does that work? Well, it's replacing the Voyager. Um, so it'll do a lot of the work the Voyager is doing. So um, it'll take up our underwater TV work, our Infomar work. It will provide more capacity for the academic community as well to do, conduct research. And we're also going to take over the training on it. So the training is going to evolve a bit because we can accommodate more people. And so we're looking at doing overnight training, do two or three nights of training actually at sea, not going back into port for, for two days. So I think that's going to be very exciting and a great asset to the, to the third level sector in Ireland. So yeah, so it's uh, uh, going to be an interesting year next year and hopefully we'll get everything uh, 
definitely by the autumn and finally on the oceans of learning podcast it is time to talk about the next generation their future and to find out what they can do to ensure the future health of our oceans i'm joined by gary kett who is a marine ecologist and this year's all atlantic ocean youth ambassador as well as emer manning who is the environment program coordinator at eco unesco as well as an all atlantic ocean youth mentor Youth and young people are probably the largest untapped resource when it comes to protecting oceans, but also for solving the climate and biodiversity crises that we have. So one of the reasons that one of the things that pulled me to environmental education was the fact that young people are probably the generation that care the most, but they are the generation that are left out the most. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to do was a educate and make sure that young people feel that they have the skills and the tools that they need to go and take the kind of action that they want to take on the climate and biodiversity crises. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to do was instill this air of confidence in young people and make them realize that they can be the change that they want to see, but banding together and doing that together is the, the best way to do that. So one of the things that I like both about the Atlantic um, youth ambassador program and about my work in Eco UNESCO is that they are both very tangible um, areas where young people can get together and form those groups and make that difference based on their skill sets and their interests and it really does make them feel more confident and like they can do something because I think this whole idea of how many people now are getting eco-anxiety the idea that this is such a broad issue that we can't possibly face it alone when you get involved in these things together it just automatically feels a lot easier um, so I think trying to get young people together to do something is the way forward and as I said it's such an untapped resource so I think anybody doing anything to bring young people into that conversation and into those actions for climate action and for climate justice is a wonderful wonderful thing to do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, I know myself when I was in the climate ambassador program, obviously I was at the slightly older <laughs> end of the age scale, but we had people, you know, who were sitting there junior cert going, yes, I am a little bit worried about my junior cert, but I also kind of want to know if sea level rise is going to affect my house in the next 10 years. Um, so completely a very aware, I, I'd say, compared to kind of previous generations. Um, I guess that awareness that, that we are seeing um, in this younger age group, would you say that is because of the more imminent nature of things like climate change is, what do you feel it is? Yeah, uh, I think so. Young people have grown up in a very globalized world with transnational issues now. They're not just Irish issues anymore. Um, they are global issues. And I think the fact that they've grown up in that world has just automatically made them more aware of what is happening and what could happen to their own future. And I think it is important to note that since 2012, 51% of the population of the world has been people who are 30 or younger. So those qualified as youth. So young people do make up the majority of the population of the world. But a lot of the time I feel like they are in a certain way put down because people think they don't have the expertise or they don't have the skills needed to fight these kind of battles uh, or to join in with these kind of actions. But young people are experts in their own needs and their own priorities. And one of the priorities and the needs of young people is to have a safe and secure future. So I, I really think that young people do need to be brought into the conversation and into the actions much, much earlier in every sort of project that you can think of because I think that there's, they have a lot to say, they have great opinions, they have great skills. And uh, I, I think that it just, young people definitely, definitely need to be included more. 
Completely. And I think I think that uh, a wonderful thing to say to any young listeners is that, you know, that fear of not knowing enough will always be there. You know, I have been working in this field for 10 years, but I work with people who have worked in this field for my entire lifetime. They're always going to have more knowledge in certain things. But you do you bring different things to the table, different knowledge, different experience. And especially, as you said, about the kind of these growing up in that kind of globalized world, they are so connected in a way as well, which is fantastic. Um, Gary, obviously, with the likes of Greta Thunberg and the climate school strikes, we're, we're just seeing really inspiring things um, coming, of, coming up with uh, the younger age group. Is there anything particular that inspired you to get involved? I suppose, um, yeah, it was really just my own my own concern for my future. Like any any young person's, um, like initially, I kind of, like many things, I kind of just fell into it really. Like I, I did a general science course and then tailored that into zoology and then just really enjoyed like oh ecology environmental science um but it wasn't until I really like grasped the seriousness of the issue I was like oh this is really this isn't a, a problem with the the animals the species the populations it's really it's a social problem you know and it's it's something that's going to affect us and our our security our well-being our, our livelihoods and our, our mental health you know and and it's just how we how we plan to live our futures and it was really that kind of realization that made me went okay this is um this isn't a science issue this is a, a people issue and this is something that we need to kind of all rally behind uh, i think he hit the nail on the head there like um getting involved can really help you overcome the the worries and the struggles of obviously eco anxiety eco grief um i always say like apathy hates action you know so so just really getting yourself out there and um, it can be a great tonic too feeling feeling like you're unable to do anything you know it's seeing the amount of people i mean we've seen it with the the huge um youth youth protests and youth, youth marches last year the year before last between extinction rebellion uh, friday's future uh climate case you know all of these and just seeing millions of people on the streets all over the world it's been like that woke up so many people and said hey i'm not alone in these worries you know um this is a huge concerted effort and there's no way that anything can be accomplished with that level of, of effort on a on such a global scale. So it's exciting, you know, and, and I think that's what got me involved with seeing how many, how much interest was there for this and the possibilities are, are really endless, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. And I would say, um, you know, I, I know myself when I came out of my master's, I was just very uh, glum about the fact that we were, you know, we were looking at all the kind of overfishing issues that have only come into the media now. And I was just phenomenally downtrodden by the fact that it wasn't being talked about at the time. Um, so I guess, I mean, you talked uh, touched on it a bit there a little bit with um, the climate strikes and everything that's been going on the last few years. Um, what do you feel at the moment is uh, kind of the greatest barrier to actionable change? I think... Um... Probably the disconnect between what people want and what they see being right realized in in everyday life. You know, um, I think there's a lot of frustration out there. People know what they want. People want a better society for living in. They want they want things like public transport. They want clean beaches and clean rivers and clean oceans. You know, people know what we want and how the kind of society we want to live in, and that's just not being realized. And on the government level, we're still subsidizing oil and gas companies are still you know carrying out all these harmful practices and, and i think that's a huge it's a big barrier and um, there's also as we touched on like education people people are aware that there's a problem but not always sure what they can actually do about it so um it's a great reason to get involved with education is to 
really inspire i mean the next generations the actual the future who are coming be like <clears throat> excuse me inspire this future to be like here look there is lots we can do you know and there's lots of ways to get involved make your voice heard demand changes group together so there's barriers but there's there's ways to overcome them too i guess yeah, absolutely. And I guess, Emer, um, you know, we've talked a little bit in, in some of our uh, with some of our previous speakers about the fact that the science is already there um, for for like scientists and academics who are saying at the moment that maybe their role is not to be lobbyists or activists. What would you kind of say to get and kind of encourage them really to get involved? Yeah, uh, so this is something that I'm very passionate about in terms of I really think that science needs to have more of a multilateral view to what they do. So if if I had a magic wand and I could change anything about the science community, it would be that all of these hard sciences that we look at in terms of ocean science, engineering, um, like specifically ocean engineering and everything, I would love to merge them with social science. Because I feel like that there is, as Gary said, that, that disconnect, particularly when it comes to education. And uh, I think it's really important as well. I, I know that for scientists, the idea is to constantly find the new information and get that research out there and publish that research. But we have to be really honest with ourselves and say that the average person is not trained on how to really read scientific literature. And yeah. some of the, the communications that are used in scientific literature are very, very difficult, even sometimes for other scientists. I certainly, for fun, wouldn't sit down and read scientific papers. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody else doing, doing that for, for a bit of fun. So I think that what we need is... Uh, in order to make this more accessible and more tangible for other people to feel like, oh, there is something that I can be doing. I think that needs to be put out there in such a way that it is more um, easy to understand and that you feel like you're giving people genuine information where they can genuinely make a difference. So uh, mainstream media, we see talking about the plastics issue in the oceans a lot, but we don't necessarily see tangible actions that people can take around that. Then we have shockumentaries like Seaspiracy that have come out and have given people this don't eat fish and create more MPAs, but that has knock-on effects that are completely not thought about. Yeah. So what you need is the scientists who are actually on the ground and know what needs to be done, tell people tangible ways that those things can be done. Yeah. So I think a merging of social science and hard sciences would probably be one of the best things that could be done if I could magically make it happen. But I do understand that people spend a lot of their life studying to do one thing and bringing social science is a totally different aspect they might not have any interest in but I do think it's really important. I actually I love that as an idea and um, you know it's something that we often see in other fields where um, there's so many different kinds of people who will maybe study something like an like an engineering degree and then do an MBA to become part of business and yet we don't see scientists going on to kind of, I guess, round out that that kind of education and something else. I do know a few people actually who have gone from science into social science, so I will let you know about them. But um, but no, definitely. And I guess um, kind of talking about the, the scientists, academics on the other side, um, you know, what do we kind of say or what do we do to politicians who still aren't um, taking a clear stand on the kind of impending nature of climate change? So politicians is another area and politics is another area that I'm quite passionate about, particularly with young people. I don't think the general public realizes sometimes that politicians are voted in or, or are elected into their roles in order to take your opinions as their constituents and carry them higher. 
So if you are not actively telling your politician what you want to see change, if you're not telling them the issues that you see around your local community or around your country, they then they don't know. And then they don't feel like they have to take any of these issues higher. So one of the things that I would say is that you have to continuously lobby politicians. And politics is one of those topics that might not necessarily interest you, but it is in your best interest for yourself to get an interest in politics. Um, because without you act actively using your voice and telling your local representatives what you want to change and getting other people in on this as well to tell local politicians what you all want to change, no change will be made. So it is one of those gray areas where unfortunately, I don't know if I want to call politicians lazy because they're not, they're incredibly busy, but they won't create problems themselves. They need to be told and they need to be able to say, John Doe or Jane Doe told me X, Y, Z, and I think we need to do something about it. And that's what they need. So please, please, to everyone out there, whether you are young, old, in between, whatever, use your voice and actively message your politicians about what you want to see happen in the country. And if you don't know who your local representatives are, there's a really great website that is called whoismytd.com. And if you type in your address, it will give you a list of every single local representative that is elected in your area. And all you have to do is write one email about what you care about, copy and paste that email to all of your representatives, tell your friends to post your email to all representatives, flood the inbox when they come into work the next morning about what you care about. That is one of the biggest ways to make change specifically in this country. We're just going to do one last question for each of you. So Gary, one tip um, something that you could give maybe a takeaway for our listeners, something they can do now to help protect our oceans. Yeah, I suppose if I had to boil it down to one, um, it would just be kind of kind of going off what we just said, like get involved, you know, and and give a damn. And even if if it's not um, emailing your TD, but like saying to somebody when you see them, when you see somebody making a mess on the beach, you know, just like don't be afraid to have your voice heard and don't be afraid to get out there and just really and email your politician and talk to your neighbours, talk to your friends and say, you know, this is bothering all of us. What can we do about this? And so, yeah, just don't don't be shy, you know, uh, get out there, get involved and make a difference, I suppose. Amazing. Thank you. And Emery, same to yourself. Yes. So I want to focus this on uh, how to engage more young people as well in the conversation, um, because it's something that I think myself and Gary, especially because we're I think both of us are about to move from that early career stage into a mid career age now. Um, I think that it's really important for anybody, if you are a mid to late career professional, to include youth from the beginning in all aspects of a project that you're working on. So don't create something and then test it on young people or ask young people their opinions after it's been created. Have youth at the table from stage one. Um, and I want to also just echo the UN Ambassador Thompson when he said, reach out past your habitual communities, the ones that you work with every day, actively invite youth into your space. There has never been such an educated youth force. More young people than ever have been going for graduate degrees, masters and PhDs. We have the skills, we have the knowledge. We literally just need somebody to reach out and invite us into that space. So if you are a young person, also uh, as a flip side, feel free to put yourself out there and reach out to those people in mid to late career professional stages and offer them your own expertise, 
And on the flip side, if you are a mid to late career professional, please do have a space there for youth. We want to be involved. The issues that you are facing, we also are going to have to face eventually. Um, so if we can work together now to make solutions for those problems, I think that's best for every generation and every generation to come. So that's it, folks. The final episode of the Oceans of Learning podcast. We have delved into marine livelihoods, well-being, climate change, and taken a look into the future. I hope you have enjoyed the series, but also learned something and maybe got a bit of an insight into the future of our oceans as well. From the food we eat to the air we breathe, our oceans are a precious resource and something that we must do everything we can to protect. Don't forget, you can also go to marine.ie for a lot more resources. I hope you have enjoyed the podcast and please do rate, review and subscribe. I am Finn van der Aar and thanks so much for listening. Oceans of Learning, the podcast celebrating our seas and Ireland's marine resource is presented by the Marine Institute. To find out more, go to marine.ie.